Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Hey, if you're tuning in online, thanks for inviting us into your home. Uh, the place looks wonderful. I'm just kidding. We actually can't see your homes from here. Don't worry about that. I'm sure it's very pleasant. And for those in the parking lot, so glad you're here. I'm actually pretty jealous. I'd like to be in the parking lot right now. It's a gorgeous day, and I'm sure many of you would also like that as well. But I just want to welcome you all to the Christian Life Center. So glad to have you guys here. As Ben said, uh, we're in week three of this series, and I'm uh, excited to be able to share with you all uh, for the series I'm in today. Um, you may have seen me before. Usually, I'm running around uh, the service, the sanctuary in the hallway. Uh, I'm actually on our AV team here at the church, and you can always tell what kind of state I'm in by how fast I'm running, right? If I'm sprinting, something's terribly wrong with AV, and I'm trying to figure it out, right? But if I'm walking, I'm living my best life. And so if you ever see me uh, running around, you can figure out how I'm doing. I get the privilege of working with our AV team here at the church. They are really awesome. They help put these services together and make sure everything runs smoothly, and they have to deal with me. Uh, I also get to work with our high school students, which is super awesome. I love it. Some people are intimidated by it. I love it, but they can be brutally honest. Like, they tell me when my jokes are horrible, and it's so great to hear that all the time, guys, right? Uh, but they're super wonderful, and we have some great volunteers who work in that program as well. And then occasionally, you guys get to see me up here. I will occasionally do music, and like today, I get to speak and share with you guys as we continue to journey through the book of Luke. And so I'm so excited to do that today. Uh, as I mentioned, we are in week three of this series, I'm In. This statement, this phrase that we say when we are game, when we want to participate in something, right? And our hope in this series, and I'll be very candid with you guys, we do have an agenda. We have an agenda that through this series, we can all arrive at the end of it and say, I'm in. I want to participate in what God's doing, not in the future, not when I die, but I want to participate in what God's doing right now. And so our hope, our agenda is that by the end of this series, we can all be at this place where we have clarity about what God's doing and then that we may make decisions that reflect our desire to be in on that plan, right? And so that is our hope. That is our agenda. And I get it. We have people all over the spectrum, right? Some people uh, come here and they're kind of confused about Christianity. Maybe they've been hurt by the church, right? Maybe uh, they're just confused by this faith thing and they're still trying to figure it out. And then we have some of us who've been here for a while, some of us who've been in the church for a while, and we have clarity and we have a faith story and we've kind of arrived to this place where we are in. So no matter where you are, I just want you to know there's room at the table. We're going to journey through this together and we are really, really glad that you guys are here. And so what I want to do is I kind of want to catch everybody up to where we've been. Josh started the series the last couple weeks, right? Uh, and he started with uh, this statement, I'm in, which again means to participate in the movement of God, not just tomorrow, not in the future, but today, right now, right? And so uh, he talked about the key identifiers for movements, right? We believe the Christian faith is a movement that's been going for a couple thousand years right now, right? And so he was talking about the first couple of weeks, we talked about what are some uh, identifiers of these movements and what does it mean to be all in for this movement, to be all in in the faith, right? And so we actually talked about this missiologist wrote, I guess this book that talked about some key identifiers for movements, key ingredients that most major movements in the world have. And the first one that Josh covered was a white hot faith. Two weeks ago, he said, every major movement, most all of them have a white hot faith. It is a faith that can't coexist with complacency, right? A faith that prompts you to do something differently and to move. And we talked about the story, the feeding of the 5,000, right? I wish I was there. I love food. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 kind of stirred up this white hot faith in the disciples, right? And so that was the first identifier. The second thing which he talked about last week was being committed to a cause, a commitment that isn't easily deterred by hardship or trial. And we talked about the story of Jesus uh, telling the disciples that he was about to die, right? If you're committed to a cause and your leader is about to die, right, will your commitment carry you through that moment? So a commitment that isn't easily deterred by hardship or trial. And today, we're going to talk about the third major ingredient for big movements, and that's going to be contagious relationships contagious relationships. We're going to talk about what I think is one of the most profound encounters in the New Testament. One of the most incredible stories that I'm sure if we were there, it would have been impactful for us. This is an encounter that the disciples had with Jesus that almost 
undoubtedly made them say, I am in, right? I was in before, but I am all in now. And my hope is that after we look through this story, that we can be at the same place where we can say, I'm in. I was in, but I am all in. And so we're going to look at the story of the transfiguration um, today. But before we do that, let me go ahead and pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thanks for this space where we get to wrestle with the scripture together. That we get to get clarity on who it is that you say you are and what you are inviting us into. And so God, we pray that if we're at home, parking lot, even in this, this building right here, that we would just tune in to what you might be saying to us today, that these would be your words and not mine, and that you would just give us clarity so that we can make the decision to say, I am in. So God, we pray this all in your name. Amen. So we're going to look at this encounter today, the transfiguration, but I actually wanted to start it with a story because I like a good story. And I had some hesitancy about whether or not I wanted to share this story. I didn't want it to be like ah, self-promotion or look at this cool thing I did. But really, I wanted to share a story of uh, one of the most profound encounters that I had in my life that left me in awe and wonder. Uh, so I'm going to share that story today. So, um, so growing up, we all had our favorite band, right? Everyone have a favorite band that they tune to, right? I know some of you guys, you still, your favorite band's the Backstreet Boys, and this is a place of forgiveness and grace. It is a safe place to be here. Don't worry, there's absolutely no judgment. But growing up, my favorite band was a band called Switchfoot out of San Diego. Uh, they, uh, I started listening to them when I was in about sixth grade, and they're a band of Christians that sing about all of these things, including like politics and faith and just life itself, right? And so they sang about all of these things. I started following them in 2006. I went to my first concert in 2007 in Lehigh Valley at the college up there. And it was incredible. After the concert, I actually got to meet uh, the lead singer in the street. It, was, it blew my mind. I was in seventh grade. Uh, fast forward, you know, I started getting into their music more, started listening to their music. I started going to more shows, about one or two average a year. And then I even started learning some of their songs on the guitar, right? I wanted to kind of participate uh, in it in that way, right? But then November 2016 came. November 2016, my wife and I were living in Tennessee. I was doing some grad work down there. And uh, Switchfoot was playing a show in Memphis, which is about an hour from where we live. And so before the show, it was me, my wife, and a friend of ours. And we were just kind of talking, getting ready for the show, getting hyped up, right? You know, the, the, everything that everyone does before a concert, they get excited, get their, they get their, the band merch on, right? They're getting ready. And so we were talking about this concert. And uh, I was telling my friend, I was like, one time I went to a concert, and they called someone up on stage to play guitar with them, like during a song. It was the song Stars. I remember it. And they paused. And during the pause, they invited this guy up on stage, and he killed it. He played the song with them. And then she turned back to me. She's like, you know that song guitar, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I know it a little bit. I played it like once or twice. And she's like, you should go on stage with them tonight and play. I'm like terrified. I'm like, no, 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 I should not do that. She's like, no, you should do this. It's like, so I said, fine, let's try it out. So actually, I just got my guitars in the kitchen of my small apartment with my wife and our friend. And I was just trying to like strum through this riff, trying to figure it out. And then I actually made this sign right here. It's a cardboard sign that says, can I play stars with you? And so I made this sign and then we drove to Memphis, Okay. And so we drove to Memphis, is the Minglewood Hall in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, the opening act comes and goes, and then Switchfoot's on stage. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm starting to sweat, right? They come on stage, and then they get to that song, Stars. And I start holding my sign up like a maniac. And I even take my phone flashlight out, and I'm shining it on the sign because I want them to see, can I play Stars with you? And I would tell you the rest of the story, but... We actually found a video of it on YouTube, and so we're going to share with you guys what happened after that. You can check this out. Okay. 
I see a sign that says, can I play stars with you? And uh, this is America, so I, this is our evening tonight, Memphis. Right? Is that cool if this, this man who has a sign gets up here and plays stars? Get up here, man. Christian, y'all. He's a pick, and um, you, you can just use my guitar right here. here. Alright, so here's what we're gonna do. Before we do it, I feel like we should all just, just sing this out together for Christian right here. that I followed for years invites me into his inner circle. He invites me into his sacred space to experience the music in a way that seldom would people get to experience, right? And the story we're looking at today is one of Jesus doing the same thing for the disciples. They're journeying with him for years, and he invites them into this sacred space to experience him in a way unlike anything we've seen, right? And we're in the story of the transfiguration. And so we're going to work through this today. I'll make reference to this story about how there's some similarities, maybe between the experience with the disciples, uh, maybe in myself, right? And so uh, he invites them into his inner circle, and I would argue, I would argue that he's doing that for us as well. Christ invites us to experience him unlike anything else, right? To experience an intimate relationship with him. And so, as you guys know, we've been in the book of Luke for the greater part of a year now. We're going to be working through this today. And if we remember, the book of Luke was written by Luke for the purpose of giving his audience certainty, for giving them certainty about the things and the ways and of who Christ is, right? And so he's trying to convince people, and I don't think there's any better story in the book of Luke, than the transfiguration to convince his audience of who this guy is. And so uh, Luke is trying to convince his, uh, the people reading and following this story, the Jews and the Gentiles, to say, I'm in, right? He wants everyone after reading his book to say, I'm in, I'm going to participate in this no matter what, right? And so what, where we are at when it comes to this story is Jesus is near the end of his ministry in Galilee. And we know what comes after Galilee. He actually heads to Jerusalem to be executed by the Roman government, right? And this story in particular is unique because it actually focuses in, it answers the question, who is Jesus? This guy that's been doing healings, this guy that's been raising people from the dead, like he's catching my attention. Who is he? Where did he come from? And what is going on, right? And so this story is trying to give us some clarity there. And so we're going to start actually in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. But what I want to preface our scripture reading today is, is with this. Um, I think a lot of times when we read scripture, maybe for some of us who've been in the church for a while, we've become desensitized to its wonder and awe. We'll read the story of the transfiguration, be like, oh yeah, you know, this happens, this happens. Like, I've read it before. But what I want to be cautious of is that we don't let that happen. Let's keep our awe and wonder in this moment, and let's 
see this story as if we were seeing it for the first time, and even as if we were one of the disciples there in the moment. So I really want to challenge you guys in that as we jump in. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And so that's the first verse. Eight days. Eight days after what sayings, Christian? Actually, if you guys check out the sermon from last week, Josh covered this. But what happened was Jesus was explaining once again, I'm going to be killed by the Roman government, and then I'm going to come back three days later, right? And so he says that to them, and then he gives them instructions on how they can participate in the kingdom of God. And so I encourage you to check out the sermon from last week to hear more about that. And so he brings Peter, James, and John. I was kind of thinking, that's kind of exclusive, isn't it, right? Uh, But these three disciples were actually Jesus's closest disciples. They saw Jesus in his greatest glory, glorious moments, but they also were with him in the most trialing of moments too, the most difficult moments. And so, of course, they would join him up this mountain. And Luke was always good at noting geographical locations because a lot of times it's not by accident that they include that in there, right? A lot of times these locations are really, really important. In fact, if you read the Hebrew tradition, a mountain is a really profound place where you experience God in a way you haven't before. And we're going to see that happen today. And if you read the scriptures, you see that happen almost every time people go up a mountain. So we're going to pay attention to that today. There are some debates about which mountain it could be, um, but most scholars who study this and, and are familiar with this think it's Mount Hermon, which would have been pretty close to where they would have been in Galilee. Um, and if you know anything about Mount Hermon, which I don't know if any of us do, uh, it is 9,000 feet tall, okay? And so imagine, I can't imagine being a disciple asked by Jesus, like, hey, do you want to go pray up Mount Hermon? right? Would you be like excited? Like, yeah, we get to pray with Jesus. Or like, ah, oh, Jesus, can't we like just pray down here? Do we have to climb the mountain? Like, what is the deal, right? But Jesus has something in store for them, and so they oblige, and they follow Jesus up this mountain, okay? Verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, So it started out as a normal trip up a mountain to pray is getting really weird really fast, right? Here we got Jesus, and he's praying, and now his face is lighting up. I actually like Matthew's account of this story a little better. It says, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Again, let's not be desensitized to what's happening. Maybe we've read this before. We're like, yeah, yeah. But imagine being in that moment and this dude you've been journeying with, his face looks like the sun, right? How would you respond? Like, how would you respond right now if I grew wings, right? You might be concerned or confused or hopefully mildly shocked. You wouldn't be like, oh, Christian grew wings, you know, NBD, right? Uh, No, we should be shocked. This is not normal. This is not okay. What is happening to Jesus, right? And so the passage continues, and it even gets more strange. It's so interesting. Verse 30, and behold, two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot going on here. I'm going to take a couple of minutes to unpack it because in order to understand the significance of this moment, right, in order to understand the significance of this mountaintop experience, we have to understand what is going on here. So we have four guys go up a mountain, and then all of a sudden there's six of them, right? And these, these guys who appear, Moses and Elijah, are celestial beings, Meaning they, they, came, they didn't come from earth. They came from heaven because Moses died years ago, right? And Elijah was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And so these guys are celestial beings. And it says this word glory. Glory is not a word that we use a lot in our, you know, modern day vernacular. I don't say, hey, mom and dad walked in in glory, right? And if y'all say that, sorry if I offended anyone. But I don't think anyone says in glory anymore when they describe someone being here. But what that basically means is this is significant, right? When there's heavenly beings in the room, in this space, they're there in glory. This is significant, right? And so I want to, again, let's not be desensitized. Let's realize what's happening. And so these two individuals, why these two individuals? Uh, They would have caught the attention of any Jew reading this scripture or hearing this story. Because Moses and Elijah were two of the most renowned, most, most, uh, the most prominent figures in the Jewish tradition. Because Moses, we all know the story of like the Ten Commandments, right? Moses brought the Jews the law. 
He gave them the law that would shape their culture for hundreds and thousands of years. And so that's a significant person to be on the mountaintop. And then we have Elijah. Elijah was also a significant person because he was one of the biggest, most major prophets for the Jewish tradition. And so these two individuals would have caught the attention of Peter, James, and John. They would have been dumbfounded that these two giants in the faith were there on the mountaintop with them. Okay? So this is a big deal. So Moses and Elijah are here, and Jesus looks like the sun. Got it, okay? Uh, I wanted to also mention, I talked about, remember I said this passage kind of highlights, it hones in on the identity of Jesus, right? If we remember a couple passages back, when Peter asked uh, Peter, when Jesus asked Peter, who do the, the people say I am? What did, what did Peter answer? Do we remember? I do this to students all the time. Yeah, some say, some say Moses or Elijah, right? So, Jesus can't be Elijah because Elijah's right there. And Jesus is right there. And so already we're getting clarity. Okay, Jesus can't be Moses. Jesus can't be Elijah. There's something going on here, right? And so this is a very important detail that we should pay attention to. This is Jesus unequivocally confirming that he is not Elijah, okay? And so this story then reveals to us, okay, if he's not Elijah, who is he, right? Who is Jesus? Another thing I want to highlight, why are they here? Like, why'd they have to go to the mountaintop, right? Maybe you're asking this question, why are Moses and Elijah there? Like, do they have to be there? What's Jesus kind of doing here, right? And look at the nature of the conversation that they're having. They're talking about a departure, which is not like leaving to Jerusalem or leaving from Jerusalem. It actually means, uh, the, the Greek word is exodon, which is the same, uh, same word we get exodus from and exit, right? Jesus, they're talking about Jesus departing his body, in Jerusalem. So here Moses and Elijah are with Jesus actually having a very vulnerable conversation. What must have been a difficult conversation to have to talk about Jesus' upcoming death, right? So let me recap. I know that was a lot. I know that was a lot. Here we have the two incredible figures join Jesus, Peter, James, and John, right? On this mountaintop, which is great for significance, right? And we know that Jesus is distinct from these prominent uh, figures because he's not Moses and he's not Elijah. And they come to discuss a very vulnerable, difficult topic, okay? The passage continues. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. I love... (laughs) that Luke included this detail of sleep because how many of us can resonate with just being exhausted all the time, right? He's highlighting that these disciples, and and you can't blame him. I mean, they did a hike up a 9,000-foot mountain, right? Um, But how many of us, man, we're busy and we are exhausted. And sometimes we might miss out on an incredible encounter with God, right? So I just, I resonate with that. I like to sleep if you don't know me. And so I was like, thanks, God, for putting that in there. Um, So these guys are asleep, and perhaps the murmuring of these voices and this bright light kind of startles them awake, right? And what did they notice when they woke up, though? They didn't notice these two figures in their glory. They noticed Jesus in his glory, right? Which is interesting because they would have been very fond of Elijah and Moses. They would have been startled because they hadn't seen Elijah and Moses the last three years like they had Jesus. But in this moment when they wake up, they're not focusing on the glory of Elijah and Moses, but they are focusing on the glory of Jesus. And then the scripture says, and they're like the two men there, like these two guys who just kind of meandered there, right? They're focusing on the glory of Jesus, which is a significant moment because what it communicates to us is that Christ makes these faith giants look small. That Christ is not Moses. Christ is not Elijah. But rather, he's something much, much, much greater than Moses and Elijah. And again, those two figures are really prominent in that faith, right? They caught the first glimpse of Christ in his full divine glory. Christ invited them into his inner circle and revealed himself to them. In the fullness of his deity and humanity, he gave them an encounter that most people would never experience, right? This is a significant moment. Let's not be desensitized. Imagine yourself in the story. How would you respond? How would you wake up and how would you process that scene, right? And what would you say, too, right? 
Um, I know uh, it, I'd, be, I'd be nervous that I would screw up that moment. And fortunately, like, I mean, that's kind of what happened. Peter did that. We can identify with failure right here in the scripture in verse 33. We're going to continue. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I don't know if you noticed in the video earlier, but I actually royally botched the chorus. Like, if you ever watch it back, I'm playing the guitar, and I'm looking down during the chorus, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, guys. And I did not know what chord to hit, and I'm just shaking down at the guitar while Drew, the guitarist, and the lead singer, John, were standing to my left and right. And here Peter is, and he doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's doing, and Elijah's there, and Moses is there, and the disciples are there, and they're never going to let him live this moment down, right? And he totally botches it. He says, let's build a tent for you guys, I guess. What he's trying to do is prolong this moment. He wants Moses and Elijah to hang out. Maybe he wants to drink coffee with him and, like, pick their brain about the law and the prophecies, right? He wants them to hang out. But the comment was actually really inappropriate in context because... They had work to do. They couldn't stay on the mountaintop. They were venturing towards Jerusalem so Jesus could finish his ministry so that he could depart and then come back to life, right? And so Peter's comment was perhaps a bit selfish to say, oh, let's just keep this moment forever. Let's not go down the mountain. Let's stay here and experience this. But the best work and the most important work was still yet to come. And so for that reason, that's not a great response to what is happening in this moment. He's missing the point of the occasion. He's missing out on what God is trying to do. And how often does that happen to us? I'll be honest, it happens to me too often, uh, more often than I'd like to admit, right? Verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Gosh, where have we seen this before? This isn't the first time we stumbled upon something like this. If you actually go to Exodus 33 and 34, Moses experienced something like this. He's on a mountaintop getting the law for the people, and God shows up in a cloud, right? And actually what happens, God lets Moses see God's back as God passes by, and Moses sees God's back, and what happens to his face? Starts to illuminate, right? So we've seen this story before. And actually, if you look at Elijah and his experience in 1 Kings 19, Elijah encountered God where? On a mountaintop, right? He encounters God on a mountaintop, and in fact, he hears God whisper, and maybe out of fear, I don't know, but what Elijah does is he actually covers his face with his clothes, he doesn't want to. He's maybe afraid of the glory of God that it's so significant. So in that moment when Elijah hears God, he covers his face. And so his face does not glow, right? And so Moses and Elijah have lived this experience before. And now Peter, James, and John, well, they would have known this too, right? They would have known the story of Moses and Elijah. And they would have known, they would have recognized this scene. But now Peter, James, and John they get to relive this experience with Moses and Elijah, but their experience is totally different. And it's for one glaring reason that it's totally different. Did you notice that Moses' face illuminated after he encountered God, right? Elijah's face did not illuminate because he had it covered, but Jesus' face illuminated before God showed up in the cloud. And so what could this mean? This could mean one of two things. One, Jesus ate something really weird for dinner that had his face light up, right? Or the second thing, which is probably more likely, that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God, that he doesn't have to have an encounter with God for his face to glow because he is God, right? He isn't Elijah. He isn't Moses. But Jesus is the Messiah that we've waited for. This is our guy. This is who we've waited for, right? 
And in, in case there's any remaining speculation, like that should have sealed the deal right there. Uh, but in case there's any remaining speculation, because we are a fickle people in need of convincing, right? God then shows up on the scene in a cloud and offers verbal confirmation to accompany the visible spectacle. And he, says, and he says this, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Because you've listened to Moses in the law, Listen to my son. You've listened to Elijah and the prophets. Now you are supposed to listen to my son who rightly interprets the Old Testament, who understands the Old Testament. Listen to him. Give attention to the things that he is asking of you. So this moment right here, it did probably for them and it should for us, should provide utmost clarity that Jesus is the one that Moses alluded to, that Jesus is the one that Elijah prophesied about, And Jesus is the one that the disciples have been waiting for. And the passage finishes. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I can imagine this whole experience would have been just like, whiplash for the disciples, right? Like, here they are praying. Oh, Jesus is glowing. Oh, there's Moses and Elijah. Oh my gosh, God's here in a cloud, right? And then it finishes with this moment of just Jesus on the mountaintop after this incredible experience, right? Um, And they kept silent about it. In fact, Matthew's account uh, in Matthew 17 Uh, we actually get the uh, understanding in the snippet of Jesus saying, hey, actually, don't tell anyone until after my resurrection, which implies that there is a time to tell people about this stuff, right? Which implies that we have to take this news out there, right? And so this concludes uh, this incredible encounter. And then from here, they move down the mountain, continue in a couple more healings and miracles as they make their way to Jerusalem, right? So I'm sure you're thinking, okay, okay, What's the point? Like, why did this happen? I mean, why did they have to go up to the mountain? Why Moses and Elijah, right? Like, what is the objective of all this stuff? And as I was studying this and trying to wrestle through it, I kind of walked away with two significant observations, right? And the first one we kind of covered up until this point, it's that Jesus is God, right? If he's trying to convince people of this story, this moment will help in that. If he's trying to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God, what better story to include than the transfiguration, right? God's making it abundantly clear that this is your guy. This is your guy. You all left your families to follow this guy. Rest assured, this is your guy. You guys are being uh, oppressed. You guys are being persecuted because of this guy. But don't worry, this is your guy. This is the Son of God. He is trustworthy, and the best is yet to come. This is your guy. And so hopefully, after this experience, hopefully these disciples are saying, I'm in. (laughs) I, I mean, I was in before, but I am in because I have seen the face of God, right? Now, what does it look like for us to be all in? That's where my second observation comes in. Vulnerable community is the method. Jesus not only convinces his disciples to be all in, but even in this moment, with everything Jesus does with his teachings, he's teaching them not only through lessons, but in actually how it is that he lives and how it is that he practices his ministry. And so Jesus is teaching them to be all in, and he's showing them how to be all in in this moment. And it's vulnerable community. It's contagious relationships. The church, right? Invite people into the intimate and deep and vulnerable moments of your life. Welcome some trusted people into your inner circle where you reveal who you are, your struggles, your pains, your glorious moments, your doubts, your strengths, and everything in between. Practice vulnerability. And I know what some of us are thinking, like, nope, I'm going to pump the brakes right there. I will go to church on Sundays. Every Sunday, I will volunteer. I will tithe. I will even do a small group. But I'm not letting anybody in. Not about that. Not going to let anybody into this mess. I'm not going to disclose my vulnerabilities. I'm not doing that, right? But bear with me just for a second. This 
this is what ought to distinguish the church from just any other community, right? Our love for God and our love for each other in the form of great vulnerability. And Christ models that right here. If you want to be in, this is what it looks like, right? One of my favorite artists, uh, authors, his name is C.S. Lewis, he writes this quote in one of his books on love and vulnerability. And he actually argues that it's almost impossible to truly love if we're not willing to be vulnerable. And then he even identifies, yeah, it's risky business. There's a lot of risks with vulnerability. This is what he writes. To love it all is to be vulnerable, which just means to be susceptible to wounds, right? Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So if we're called to love God and love others, which we are, it's very likely that it looks like inviting a handful of them, not everyone, but a handful of people into your inner circle, being vulnerable. This is what Christ models for us, and this is what contagious relationships look like, right? Now let's talk about, you know, the balance between risk and reward. Because Lewis is right. There's some risk when we love other people, when we make ourselves vulnerable. He says uh, to, love or, to love is to be vulnerable, right? And uh, it's not risk-free, right? As Christ models here, it's not risk-free. Uh, when, I, when I was in the, the, the crowd and, and the singer called me on stage, I was holding up my sign, and like right when like that moment when I knew he saw it and he identified, he's like, I see his sign, my heart dropped. <laughs> I was terrified. I was like, oh my gosh, this is happening. I'm about to be called on stage. There's no going back. There's great risk for me to really screw this up, which I did, right? And, there's, and I was just so anxious, and I was like, this is happening, right? And actually, at the end of the song, you couldn't see it really or hear it. Actually, the first thing I said at the end, I was like, I'm so sorry. I ruined the chorus, and he didn't care, right? This moment, when we enter community, and we see it right here in the story too with Peter and the disciples. They were sleeping on this encounter. And Peter's like fumbling with his words, right? When we enter vulnerable community in this, this inner space, what we realize is that people are messy, right? We aren't perfect, and vulnerability is going to show us that. That we are all very imperfect, right? But guess what? That's okay. That's okay. Jesus takes that into account. We're not going to do this perfectly, and that's okay. We're not going to do community perfectly, and that's okay. Vulnerability is a much smaller risk, though, than the alternative. In the face of such minimal risk, may we say, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I understand it's difficult, and I don't like to be vulnerable and open about these things, but I'm in if the risk of this is much smaller than the alternative, right? And sometimes I think we get into weighing the risk without even giving any attention to the reward, right? We're like, nope, too risky, not doing it. But we don't even consider the alternative. We don't consider what it is that we're missing, right? And so sometimes we have to slow down and think about the reward. Yeah, there's risk, but boy, the reward is greater, right? Had I listened to the risk of my nerves and anxiety in that moment, I would have missed out on a pretty cool encounter. Had I like just like put the sign down and like meandered back to the crowd, like all the way to the back, I would have missed out on a really cool encounter, right? And so what we have to do here is slow down and experience and think about what is the reward? What does God have for me in this moment, right? And think about it this way. To be deeply known and loved by God, mess and all, and to be deeply known and loved by community, mess and all, is such a gift. How liberating is it to be known insecurities, failures, and awe, and to still be loved deeply? How rewarding is that? There's just something about that that's countercultural, and something about that that's just wildly contagious and attractive. So in the face of such a gift of vulnerable community and contagious relationships, may we say, I am in.
yeah, there's risks, but I am in. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with it, right? But I am in. And the hope is that in recognition of who it is that we worship, right? We come here every Sunday to sing to this God, right? In recognition of who it is that we worship, in recognition of what God is doing, and in recognition of what God is inviting us to, may we courageously, like the disciples, say, I'm in. I understand the risk. I understand it won't be perfect. And I'm scared beyond belief, but I'm in, right? Knowing that the reward will be worth the risk. So I'm actually going to invite the band up, and I want to extend two invitations to you all as we wrap up. It's a difficult step to take. Like all difficult steps, it requires a bit of courage, right? And so what I'm actually going to invite you to do, I'm going to put a link on the screen. Um, we have community groups here in the church, and I, there's no pressure. I'm not saying, like, you have to do this. I'm not, like, looking at each one of you and seeing if you have your phone out. Like, I'm not doing that. But what I want to challenge and encourage you guys to do is think about what would it look like? What could the reward be to be known and loved in vulnerable community? What would it look like to encounter God in ways uh, like the disciples in vulnerable community? What does it look like for us to practice these things in vulnerable community? And so I encourage you, you can take a screenshot if you're online, you can take a screenshot, you might be able to click the link. Um, I encourage you, think about what it would mean for you to partner with people. Maybe some of you are already doing that. That's awesome. How can you lean into that more? How can you practice what Jesus is showing us right here on the mountaintop, this vulnerable community, right? To be known fully and to be loved fully by those around us. And so I encourage you, if you're not in a community group, I encourage you, just click the link and check it out. Uh, do some research. Think about what it could look like for you. And then the second thing is this, communion. I think everybody has a communion cup. Maybe if you're at home, you can gather your elements right now. Communion and community actually uh, come from the same word in Greek. Uh, I'm going to try not to botch it up here. It's kinonia, koinonia, which is understood as the practice of sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. How much more vulnerable can you get than offering your life for someone, right? And so Jesus is actually practicing vulnerable community at the Last Supper when he is offering himself to his disciples. He's showing them, he's convincing them first off that it is worth being all in. And then he's showing them this is how you do it, right? And when we practice communion, kind of the way that I think of it sometimes, um, is when we practice communion, we're basically saying I'm in over and over again, right? I'm in to receive and embrace this gift of forgiveness and salvation. I'm in to be loved by God and accepted, right? I'm in for this journey of discipleship and community, right? I don't understand it, but I'm in. I'm in for community. I want to participate in what God has for me. And so when we do this, we're saying, I'm in. I want to participate. I want to receive what it is that God has has for me. And so we today, as a vulnerable community, are going to share in this experience together. And so Jesus, right before he went to the garden to be betrayed, where Peter, James, and John fell asleep on him again, right? After, before he went to the garden, he sat down with his disciples over a table with bread and wine. During the meal, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and then offered it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you can eat the wafer at this time. When the supper was over, Jesus took the cup. He gave thanks and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We can drink it at this time.
the heart of the matter is that Christ is inviting us to participate in something so profound. God is inviting us to participate in what it is that he has for us. Not tomorrow, but today, right now. And so I hope that in reflection of this story, and as we sing this last song, the heart of worship, may we return to just the reality that God is good and that Jesus has the best in store for us, even if I can't see everything that he has in store for us, right? He knew taking those disciples up that that'd be a hard trek. He knew they'd fall asleep, and he knew Peter would botch up that moment, right? But that didn't stop him from inviting him. And that does not stop Christ from inviting us today to participate in what it is that he has for us. And so I pray as we sing this song, as we go from this place, that we may be willing to climb the mountain and to experience Christ. Because Christ is inviting all of us. And we just need the courage to say, I'm in. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to sing. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you're a good God. We don't always see the top of the mountain when you're inviting us up, but God, we pray that we would just have the courage and the trust and We'd identify our fear, but not let that steer us. We just pray that we would respond and that we would move towards you, that we would respond to your invitation. We trust, and as we sing and as we come here, we trust, we do this all trusting that the best is yet to come, that you're up to something, and we just want to participate in that. And so, God, I pray as we sing this song, and I pray as we go from this place, that we would just encounter you in new ways. That we'd figure out how is it that I can experience vulnerable community? What must, I, what must I do in this moment to really plug into vulnerable community? And help us have the courage to do that. Help us journey with other people. And help us be known and loved by good community. And so God, thanks for this space. Thanks for your son. Thank you for what you're doing. We are in. We are in. We are in. And we'll sing this song to declare that. God, we love you. Thanks. Amen. At this time, we invite you to stand and sing this song with us. So I don't normally do this, but, and thanks for setting it up, but we're actually going back to the glory is yours. And here is why, because when we were all watching Christian in his video, we often will go off that stage and we'll go back in the room there. And we were like cheering for him, like, yes, you know, I said, it's a good thing we're not out there because we'd all be like, yeah. But as Christians, as he talks about community, that is what we are to one another. We are to cheer each other on, even if we're messing up, even if things aren't going right. And we do it because we give God the glory in that. When he sees that we are loving one another as he loves us, he does not discriminate when we mess up. He does not push us out of his kingdom. We are a part of it. So this morning, we're going to give glory to God. We're going to give blessing, honor, strength, and power. They all belong to the Lord. So let's sing that out.